Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast and Dad Joke Symposium. What do you call a fish with no eyes? A fish. <laughs> My name is Taiko Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this, <clears throat> if this is your first episode, welcome. I'm happy to have you here regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast believes that trans rights are human rights, that abortion is health care, and that black lives matter, and we stand in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show, as well as links to institutions fighting for reproductive justice, can all be found in the show notes. If you enjoy the show, please feel free to leave a rating and a review on the pod feed reader of your choice. I won't even ask for a positive one. I want honest feedback. You can also help support the show by joining me on Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast. The $5 and $10 tier gets you a bonus reading. For the next little while, it's The Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells, and yes, it's better than the movie was. Oh, you didn't know there was an adaptation of the book made back in the mid-90s? That's okay. Probably 75% of the world has forgotten about it since then. Even the staggeringly small number of people who liked it. Alright, let's finish the story and move on to a much better one next week. The two workmen were so frightened that they ran up the ladder by which we had descended from the trap door, but seeing that nothing more happened, they were easily induced to return. Meanwhile, I had opened up the tablet. It was bound in a plain red leather with a silver clasp. It contained but one sheet of thick vellum, and on that sheet were inscribed, within a double pentacle, words in old monkish Latin, which are literally to be translated thus. On all that it can reach within these walls, sentient or inanimate, living or dead, as moves the needle, so works my will. Accursed be the house, and restless be the dwellers therein. We found no more. Mr. J. burnt the tablet and its anathema. He raised to the foundations the part of the building containing the secret room with the chamber over it. He had then the courage to inhabit the house himself for a month, and a quieter, better-conditioned house could not be found in all of London. Subsequently, he let it to advantage, and his tenant has made no complaints. But my story is not yet done. A few days after Mr. J. had removed into the house, I paid him a visit. We were standing by the open window and conversing. A van containing some articles of furniture which he was moving from his former house was at the door. I had just urged on him my theory that all those phenomena regarded as supermundane had emanated from a human brain, adducing the charm, or rather curse, we had found and destroyed in support of my philosophy. Mr. J. was observing in reply, that even if mesmerism, or whatever analogous power it might be called, could really thus work in the absence of the operator and produce effects so extraordinary, still could those effects continue when the operator himself was dead. And if the spell had been wrought, and indeed the room walled up more than seventy years ago, the probability was that the operator had long since departed this life. Mr. J., I say, was thus answering, when I caught hold of his arm and pointed to the street below. A well-dressed man had crossed from the opposite side and was accosting the carrier in charge of the van. His face, as he stood, was exactly fronting our window. It was the face of the miniature we had discovered. It was the face of the portrait of the noble three centuries ago. "'Good heavens!' cried Mr. J. "'That is the face of De V, and scarcely a day older than when I saw it in the Rajah's court in my youth.' Seized by the same thought, we both hastened downstairs. I was first in the street, but the man had already gone. I caught sight of him, however, not many yards in advance, and in another moment I was by his side. I had resolved to speak to him, but when I looked into his face I felt as if it were impossible to do so. That eye, the eye of the serpent, fixed and held me spellbound, 
and withal about the man's whole person there was a dignity, an air of pride and station and superiority that would have made anyone, habituated to the usages of the world, hesitate long before venturing upon a liberty or impertinence. And what could I say? What was it I would ask? Thus, ashamed of my first impulse, I fell a few paces back, still, however, following the stranger, undecided what else to do. Meanwhile, he turned the corner of the street. A plain carriage was in waiting with a servant out of livery, dressed like a valet de place at the carriage door. In another moment, he had stepped into the carriage and it drove off. I returned to the house. Mr. J. was still at the street door. He had asked the carrier what the stranger had said to him. Merely asked whom that house now belonged to. The same evening, I happened to go with a friend to a place in a town called the Cosmopolitan Club, a place open to men of all countries, all opinions, all degrees. One orders one's coffee, smokes one's cigar. One is always sure to meet agreeable, sometimes remarkable persons. I had not been two minutes in the room before I beheld at a table, conversing with an acquaintance of mine whom I will designate by the initial G, the man, the original of the miniature. He was now without his hat, and the likeness was yet more startling, only I observed that while he was conversing there was less severity in the countenance. There was even a smile, though a very quiet and very cold one. The dignity of mien I had acknowledged in the street was also more striking, a dignity akin to that which invests some prince of the East, conveying the idea of supreme indifference and habitual, indisputable, indolent, but resistless power. G. soon after left the stranger, who then took up a scientific journal, which seemed to absorb his attention. I drew G. aside. Who and what is that gentleman? That? A very remarkable man, indeed. I met him last year amidst Kaiser Petra's, the spiritual Edom. He is the best Oriental scholar I know. We joined company, had an adventure with robbers, in which he showed a coolness that saved our lives. Afterwards, he invited me to spend a day with him in a house he had bought at Damascus, a house buried amongst almond blossoms and roses, the most beautiful thing. He had lived there for some years, quite as an Oriental in grand style. I suspect he's a renegade, immensely rich, very odd, by the by, great mesmerizer. I have seen him with my own eyes produce an effect on inanimate things. If you take a letter from your pocket and throw it to the other end of the room, he will order it to come to his feet, and you will see the letter wriggle itself along the floor till it has obeyed his command. Upon my honour, tis true, I've seen him affect even the weather, disperse or collect clouds by means of a glass tube or wand, but he does not like talking of these matters to strangers. He's only just arrived in England, says he's not been here a great many years. Let me introduce him to you. Oh, certainly. He is English, then? What is his name? Oh, very only one. Richards. And what is his birth? His family? What do I know? What does it signify? No doubt some parvenu, but rich. So infernally rich. G drew me up to the stranger, and the introduction was effected. The manners of Mr. Richards were not those of an adventurous traveler. Travelers are, in general, constitutionally gifted with high animal spirits. They are talkative, eager, imperious. Mr. Richards was calm and subdued in tone, with manners which were made distant by the loftiness of punctilious courtesy, the manners of a former age. I observed that the English he spoke was not exactly of our day. I should even have said that the accent was slightly foreign, but then Mr. Richards remarked that he had been little in the habit for many years of speaking in his native tongue. The conversation fell upon the changes in the aspect of London since he had last visited our metropolis. G. then glanced off to the moral changes, literary, social, political, the great men who were removed from the stage within the last twenty years, the new great men who were coming in. In all, this Mr. Richards evinced no interest. He had evidently read none of our living authors, and seemed scarcely acquainted by name with our younger statesmen. 
Once, and only once, he laughed. It was when G asked him whether he had any thoughts of getting into Parliament, and the laugh was inward, sarcastic, sinister, a sneer raised into a laugh. After a few minutes, G left us to talk to some other acquaintances who had just lounged into the room, and I then said quietly, I have seen a miniature of you, Mr. Richards, in the house you once inhabited and perhaps built, if not wholly, at least in part, in Blank Street. You passed by that house this morning. Not till I had finished did I raise my eyes to his, and then he fixed my gaze so steadfastly that I could not withdraw it. Those fascinating serpent eyes. But involuntarily, and if the words that translated my thoughts were dragged from me, I added in a low whisper, I have been a student in the mysteries of life and nature. Of those mysteries I have known the occult professors. I have the right to speak to you thus. And I uttered a certain password. Well, said he dryly, I concede the right. What would you ask? To what extent human will and certain temperaments can extend? To what extent can thought extend? Think, and before you draw breath you are in China. True, but my thought has no power in China. Give it expression, and it may have, and you may write down a thought which sooner or later may alter the whole condition of China. What is a law but a thought? Therefore thought is infinite. Therefore thought has power, not in proportion to its value. A bad thought may make a bad law as potent as a good thought can make a good one. Yes, what you say confirms my own theory— through invisible currents, one human brain may transmit its ideas to other human brains with the same rapidity as a thought promulgated by visible means. And as thought is imperishable, as it leaves its stamp behind it in the natural world, even when the thinker has passed out of this world, so the thought of the living may have power to rouse up and revive the thoughts of the dead, such as those thoughts were in life, though the thought of the living cannot reach the thoughts which the dead now may entertain. Is it not so? I decline to answer, if, in my judgment, thought has the limit you would fix to it. But proceed. You have a special question you wish to put. Intense malignity in an intense will, engendered in a peculiar temperament and aided by natural means within the reach of science, may produce effects like those ascribed to old of evil magic. It might thus haunt the walls of a human habitation with spectral revivals of all guilty thoughts and guilty deeds once conceived and done within those walls all, in short, with which the evil will claim rapport and affinity. Imperfect, incoherent, fragmentary snatches at the old dramas acted therein years ago. Thoughts thus crossing each other haphazard, as in the nightmare of a vision, growing up into phantom sights and sounds, and all serving to create horror, not because those sights and sounds are really visitations from a world without, but that they are ghastly, monstrous renewals of what have been in this world itself set into malignant play by a malignant mortal." and it is through the material agency of that human brain that these things would acquire even a human power, would strike as with the shock of electricity, and might kill, if the thought of the person assailed did not rise superior to the dignity of the original assailer, might kill the most powerful man, if unnerved by fear, but not injure the feeblest man, if, while his flesh crept, his mind stood out fearless. Thus, when in old stories we read of a magician rent to pieces by the fiends he had evoked, or still more, in eastern legends, that one magician succeeds by art in destroying another, there may be so far truth that a material being has clothed, from its own evil propensities, certain elements and fluids, usually quiescent or harmless, with awful shape and terrific force, just as the lightning that had lain hidden and innocent in the cloud becomes, by natural law, suddenly visible, takes a distinct shape to the eye, and can strike destruction on the object to which it is attracted. 
"'You are not without glimpses of a very mighty secret,' said Mr. Richards composedly. "'According to your view, could a mortal obtain the power you speak of, "'he would necessarily be a malignant and evil being. "'If the power were exercised, as I have said, most malignant and most evil, "'though I believe in the ancient traditions that he could not injure the good. "'His will could only injure those with whom it has established an affinity, "'or over whom it forces unresisted sway.' I will now imagine an example that may be within the laws of nature, yet seem wild as the fables of a bewildered monk. You will remember that Albertus Magnus, after describing minutely the process by which spirits may be invoked and commanded, adds emphatically that the process will instruct and avail only to the few, that a man must be born a magician, that is, born with a peculiar physical temperament, as a man is born a poet. Rarely are men in whose constitution lurks this occult power of the highest order of intellect— Usually in the intellect there is some twist, perversity, or disease. But on the other hand, they must possess, to an astonishing degree, the faculty to concentrate thought on a single object, the energic faculty that we call will. Therefore, though their intellect be not sound, it is exceedingly forcible for the attainment of what it desires. I will imagine such a person, preeminently gifted with this constitution and its concomitant forces. I will place him in the loftier grades of society. I will suppose his desires emphatically those of the sensualist, he has, therefore, a strong love of life. He is an absolute egotist. His will is concentrated in himself. He has fierce passions. He knows no enduring, no holy affections, but he can covet eagerly what for the moment he desires. He can hate implacably what imposes itself to his objects. He can commit fearful crimes, yet feel small remorse. He resorts rather to curses upon others than to penitence for his misdeeds." circumstances to which his constitution guides him lead him to a rare knowledge of the natural secrets which may serve his egotism. He is a close observer where his passions encourage observation. He is a minute calculator, not from love of truth, but where love of self sharpens his faculties. Therefore, he can be a man of science. I suppose such a being, having by experience learned the power of his arts over others, trying what may be the power of will over his own frame, and studying all that in natural philosophy may increase that power— he loves life, he dreads death, he wills to live on. He cannot resort himself to youth, he cannot entirely stay the progress of death, he cannot make himself immortal in the flesh and blood. But he may arrest for a time so prolonged as to appear incredible, if I said it, that hardening of the parts which constitutes old age. A year may age him no more than an hour ages another. His intense will, scientifically trained into system, operates, in short, over the wear and tear of his own frame— he lives on, that he may not seem a portent and a miracle. He dies from time to time, seemingly to certain persons, having schemed the transfer of a wealth that suffices to his wants. He disappears from one corner of the world and contrives that his obsequies shall be celebrated. He reappears at another corner of the world, where he resides undetected and does not revisit the scenes of his former career till all who could remember his features are no more. He would be profoundly miserable if he had affections, he has none but for himself. No good man would accept his longevity, and to no man, good or bad, would he, or could he, communicate its true secret. Such a man might exist. Such a man as I have described I see now before me, Duke of Blank in the court of Blank, dividing time between lust and brawl, alchemists and wizards. Again, in the last century, charlatan and criminal, with name less noble, domiciled in the house at which you gaze today, and flying from the law you had outraged, none knew whither traveller, once more revisiting London, with the same earthly passions which fill your heart when races now no more walk through yonder streets. Outlaw, from the school of all the nobler and diviner mystics, 
execrable image of life in death and death in life. I warn you back from the cities and homes of healthful men, back to the ruins of departed empires, back to the deserts of nature unredeemed. There answered me a whisper so musical, so potently musical, that it seemed to enter into my whole being and subdue me despite itself. Thus it said, I have sought one like you for the last hundred years. Now I have found you. We part not till I know what I desire. The vision that sees through the past and cleaves through the veil of the future is in you at this hour, never before, never to come again. The vision of no puling, fantastic girl, of no sick-bed somnambule, but of a strong man with a vigorous brain. Soar and look forth. As he spoke, I felt as if I rose out of myself upon eagle wings. All the weight seemed gone from air. Roofless the room, roofless the dome of space. I was not in the body where I knew not, but aloft over time, over earth. Again I heard the melodious whisper, You say right, I have mastered great secrets by the power of will. True, by will and by science I can retard the process of years. But death comes not by age alone. Can I frustrate the accidents which bring death upon the young? No, every accident is a providence, before a providence snaps every human will. Shall I die at last, ages and ages hence, by the slow though inevitable growth of time, or by the cause that I call accident? By a cause you call accident. Is not the end still remote? asked the whisperer with a slight tremor. Regarded as my life regards time, it is still remote. And shall I, before then, mix with the world of men as I did ere I learned these secrets, resume eager interest in their strife and their trouble, battle with ambition, and use the power of the sage to win the power that belongs to kings? You will yet play a part on the earth that will fill earth with commotion and amaze, for wondrous designs have you, a wonder yourself been permitted to live on through the centuries. All the secrets you have stored will then have their uses. All that now makes you a stranger amidst the generations will contribute then to make you their lord. As the trees and the straws are drawn into a whirlpool, as they spin round, are sucked to the deep, and again tossed aloft by the eddies, so shall races and thrones be plucked into the charm of your vortex. Awful destroyer, but in destroying, made against your own will a constructor. And that date, too, is far off? Far off. When it comes... Think your end in this world is at hand. How and what is the end? Look east, west, south, and north. In the north, where you never yet trod towards the point whence your instincts have warned you, there a spectre will seize you. Tis death. I see a ship. It is haunted. Tis chased. It sails on. Baffled navies sail after that ship. It enters the region of ice. It passes a sky red with meteors. Two moons stand on high over ice reefs. I see the ship locked between white defiles. They are ice rocks. I see the dead strew the decks, stark and livid, green mold on their limbs. All are dead but one man. It is you. But years, though so slowly they come, have then scathed you. There is the coming of age on your brow, and the will is relaxed in the cells of the brain. 
still that will, though enfeebled, exceeds all that man knew before you. Through the will you live on, gnawed with famine, and nature no longer obeys you in that death-spreading region. The sky is a sky of iron, and the air has iron clamps, and the ice rocks wedge in the ship. Hark how it cracks and groans. Ice will embed it as amber embeds a straw. And a man has gone forth, living yet from the ship and its dead, and he has clambered up the spikes of an iceberg, and the two moons gaze down on his form. That man is yourself, and terror is on you. Terror, and terror has swallowed your will. And I see it swarming up the steep ice rock, gray grisly things. The bears of the north have scented their quarry. They come near you and nearer, shambling and rolling their bulk. And in that day, every moment shall seem to you longer than the centuries through which you have passed. And heed this, after life, moments continued make the bliss or the hell of eternity. Hush, said the whisper, but the day you assure me is far off, very far. I go back to the almond and rose of Damascus. Sleep. The room swam before my eyes. I became insensible. When I recovered, I found G holding my hand and smiling. He said, You have always declared yourself proof against mesmerism and succumbed at last to my friend Richards. Where is Mr. Richards? Gone when you passed into a trance, saying quietly to me, Your friend will not wake for an hour. I asked as collectedly as I could where Mr. Richards lodged. At a Trafalgar hotel. Give me your arm, said I to G. Let us call on him. I have something to say. When we arrived at the hotel, we were told that Mr. Richards had returned twenty minutes before, paid his bill, left directions with his servant, a Greek, to pack his effects and proceed to Malta by the steamer that should leave Southampton the next day. Mr. Richards had merely said of his own movements that he had visits to pay in the neighborhood of London, and it was uncertain whether he should be able to reach Southampton in time for that steamer. If not, he should follow in the next one. The waiter asked me my name. On my informing him, he gave me a note that Mr. Richards had left for me in case I called. The note was as follows. Now I wished you to utter what was in your mind. You obeyed. I have therefore established power over you. For three months from this day, you can communicate to no living man what has passed between us. You cannot even show this note to the friend by your side. During three months, silence, complete as to me and mine. Do you doubt my power to lay on you this command? Try to disobey me. At the end of the third month, the spell is raised. For the rest, I spare you. I shall visit your grave a year and a day after it has received you. So ends this strange story, which I ask no one to believe. I write it down exactly three months after I received the above note. I could not write it before, nor could I show it to G in spite of his urgent request, the note which I read under the gas lamp by his side. And that is the end of the story. Please go and pick up a copy of the Colin Malatrap Museum of Curious Oddities and Strange Antiquities, 14 Interconnected Stories of Love, Loss, and Revenge. I have taken the steps of lowering the prices to make it a little more affordable for everyone. Dark Horse Road and other stories has a cover, and it has been through a sensitivity reading, so we're very close to having that ready for you. Please go and get vaccinated for anything and everything you are eligible for.
If you see a bigot out and about and doing a bigotry, pull his pants down. And always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.